Thank you for joining us at the Off Talk podcast series, where we discuss Parkinson's disease, managing off periods, and use of on-demand therapies. Each podcast will be a one-on-one discussion with a leading movement disorder specialist. Today's podcast, Telemedicine in Parkinson's Disease, is brought to you by Accorda Therapeutics, Incorporated. My name is Zev Winokur, and I'm a medical science liaison with Accorda Therapeutics. I am joined today by Dr. Ray Dorsey, the David M. Levy Professor of Neurology and Director for the Center for Health and Technology at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Dr. Dorsey, thank you for joining us. Zeb, great to be with you. Please call me Ray. Thank you. To begin with, how long have you been using telemedicine with your Parkinson's patients? Uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Kevin Bigelin, and I started seeing patients via telemedicine in a nursing home in New Hartford, New York, in 2007. And since 2013, I've largely been seeing almost all my patients uh, via telemedicine. Are there different types of virtual visits? Yeah, you can look at it in through at least three different ways. You can look at it as first as where is the patient located? Are they located in her home and in a remote clinic or in a nursing home or some other medical facility? Second is, is who's providing the care? Is it a Parkinson's disease specialist? Is it a neurologist, a psychologist, psychologist, occupational therapist, speech therapist? And third, what's the means by which the uh, remote patient and the clinician are being connected? That could be just a regular old telephone calls, an audio visit, or it can be video conferencing, often called a video visit. Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of options. Could you please tell us about your own approach to telemedicine? We usually see uh, patients by video. Uh, currently, I see patients either in a satellite clinic uh, at the University of Delaware that's actually managed by nurse practitioners. And there are people from Delaware and, and neighboring regions uh, come to uh, Newark, Delaware, to the clinic. And then the nurse practitioner connects to me and I see them in the presence of the nurse practitioner, almost like what a attending physician might see a, a patient with a, a, a neurology resident, for example. Second means by which we see patients is directly in their home. In those cases, one of our clinical research coordinators or research assistants connects to the patient uh, in her home. And then uh, they connect to me and I do a video visit with a patient directly in their home. Okay, can you walk us through a typical telehealth interaction? Yeah, so the visits aren't too dissimilar from what you would do uh, in clinic. I think they place a premium on doing a really good history because your exam is not as good as, as it is when you do it uh, remotely. Uh, so I ask people um, why they want to see me or uh, how I can help them. Uh, we take a history usually focused uh, on Parkinson's disease because that's most of what, most of what the patients uh, have. Uh, do a medical history, um, social history, just like you would do uh, in clinic. One of the nice things is you can get a, especially if they're in their home, you get a much better sense of what their day-to-day life is like because you can see their uh, their home setting, you can see their often family members, um, their pets, uh, their living situation. And then I do a, an examination focused on uh, Parkinson's disease. We'll have them tap their thumb and index fingers, uh, hold out their hands to observe for tremor, have them stand up and walk to observe their gait and see if they shuffle or anything like that. That seems pretty involved. So how do you manage your patient flow? Um, very similar, again, to what you would do in clinic. I see uh, follow-up patients every 30 minutes and a new patient uh, every hour. Um, quite frankly, most of the time, the visits are probably a little bit shorter than they are 
In clinic, you don't have to go out to the waiting room uh, to identify the patient, bring them back to the exam room, walk them back out. Uh, you're like instantaneously there in the clinic with them or instantaneously in the home with them. And you also get a lot of feedback from uh, family members uh, who are often there with the patient. And uh, if I'm seeing a patient in a satellite clinic, I get a lot of great information from the nurse practitioner. Thanks. That makes sense. Can you describe your approach to the clinical exam and managing medications? So one of the cardinal features of Parkinson's disease is uh, cogwheel rigidity or stiffness, you know, which is not readily assessed uh, remotely, although my colleague, Dr. Boss Bloom, is working on ways to do that via telemedicine. Most other parts of the exam are, uh, can be assessed via uh, telemedicine. It's worth remembering that Dr. James Parkinson, who described the condition in 1817, his observations were largely based on his visual inspection of people. Uh, three of the six individuals he wrote about in his uh, a paper called Paralysis Agitans, he didn't even actually physically examine. So the characteristic stoop posture, the shuffling gait, the flexed arm, the pill rolling tremor, all those things you can observe pretty well uh, by video. And then Managing medications is very similar uh, to what uh, would be done in clinic. I've seen probably hundreds, if not thousands of new and follow-up patients uh, via telemedicine and prescribed medications, much like I do uh, in regular clinic. So now that you've described your own approach to telemedicine, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of telemedicine itself. To begin with, what are some of the advantages that telemedicine can provide to clinicians? So fundamentally, telemedicine allows you to bring care to patients instead of patients to care. Uh, the gold standard for clinical care is not an in-person in-clinic visit. Uh, the gold standard for clinical care is an, likely an in-home in-person uh, clinical visit. And so you lose some things when you do a telemedicine visit. You lose uh, the quality of the examination. It's a little bit harder to form a relationship when you're not uh, directly uh, seeing a patient or meeting a, a person uh, in the flesh, but you gain some things. Um, you get a little much, much better sense of what a person's day-to-day -day life is like. You're much more likely to encounter family members and, especially, and oftentimes multiple family members. You can see what's going on in the background. Uh, you know, what's their daily life like? Uh, the first patient I think I ever saw in their home, uh, there was a man uh, his wife was uh, cooking uh, lunch in the background, making soup. Um, you know, I got a pretty good sense of what his day-to-day -day life was like uh, by just seeing him in his home setting in his uh, kitchenette uh, versus what I would normally see in a sterile environment like a clinic. So family is definitely important to this process. Yes, uh, family is really important. And sometimes uh, the nice thing about telemedicine is the family need not be actually in the same place that the patient is. Uh, I used to see a patient in Florida and her daughter lived in England. And every time I saw the patient in Florida, we her daughter would join us from uh, England and uh, we'd have a three-way call. And they would probably often have a conversation be either before I joined or after I left uh, to catch up on things unrelated uh, to, the, to the woman's uh, Parkinson's disease. Do you feel that family members get involved more so than with telemedicine? Yeah, uh, you know, oftentimes it's in somebody's home, so it's uh, easier for them to join and to participate. Or if it's in a satellite clinic, it's uh, close to their uh, home or in a nursing home. Not only do you get the family members, but you get the nurse. So uh, oftentimes if you're seeing a, a, a 
individual with Parkinson's disease who's a nursing home resident in a traditional clinic, all you get is a very large fat chart and maybe the driver who uh, drove the individual uh, to the clinic. Um, when you see a patient with Parkinson's disease in the nursing home, you can often uh, speak directly to the nurse who's been caring for that individual on a daily basis, often for days, weeks, months, or years. Uh, and then you can see family members who might live nearby and are able to uh, readily join those visits without having to worry about travel. On the flip side, what are some of the challenges that clinicians should be aware of when it comes to telehealth? Yeah, the big one's the exam. And the second is harder to establish a relationship. You know, when you shake somebody's hand, remember when we used to shake people's hands, uh, it's much easier to establish a relationship. And video conferencing, especially when we were doing it, you know, 10 years ago was a really foreign concept to many people. And so they were a little, they looked at it maybe in a skeptical manner. And it really took like 10 to 15 minutes before people would be developed some degree of comfort with it. Um, some diseases uh, are not well suited uh, for telemedicine. So if you just think about neurology in general, you know, diagnosing someone with ALS is difficult even to do in person. Uh, doing it remotely is really difficult to do where you can't do uh, reflexes uh, and the like. Uh, multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, you know, things that require detailed neurological exam, detailed sensory examination, detailed examination of subtle eye movements uh, are very difficult to do uh, remotely. Uh, however, for those individuals, once you've established a diagnosis, a long-term follow-up care for them might even be better provided uh, via telemedicine. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, even so-called experts like me uh, aren't sure of the diagnosis. And sometimes we have to ask people to come in to see us or see one of our colleagues to get evaluated in person because, you know, it's just too hard to figure out uh, what's going on uh, when doing it remotely. Do you have any other practical advice that you'd like to offer physicians that are new to telehealth? Uh, I think you might like it. Uh, and it's really not that difficult. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of clinicians have really gotten firsthand experience in, this, in doing telemedicine, the setting of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And after you work out the kinks of figuring out how to use video conferencing and figuring out how to, you know, have the patient sit back from the camera so you can observe more of their body, especially their hands uh, with Parkinson's disease, you know, looking for tremor. Um, it's really a nice way to interact with people. You get to see the rest of, you know, we care for 500 people throughout New York state. I get to see all different parts of New York state. And so I get a sense of what different parts of the country are like and uh, what their life is like, uh, you know, outside of a clinical setting, which is, you know, an artificial environment that doesn't lend itself to getting to know uh, your patients in a way, uh, in, in the same way that you do when you're seeing them in their home environment. Thank you for that. Let's talk about doctor-patient communication. What recommendations do you have to improve on efficient quality communication between the clinicians and their Parkinson's patients? I think telemedicine actually puts a premium on your having to be a good clinician um, because you have to listen more. Uh, I devote more of my time to taking a history and to hearing from the patient because my exam is just not going to be as good as it is in person. I have to observe more because, you know, you're looking for subtle features of Parkinson's disease, and that's often based on observation, and you have to be really attentive. I guess I wish I could, like, control the camera sometimes so that I could, like, observe different parts, just like you could in clinic, you know, move your eyes around to look at the hands and then the feet or the legs and then the mouth or the chin. Um, 
but it really, really, I think, puts a premium on being listen, listening and being empathetic and being and having to do some degree of expertise. Like I would be really bad at doing this for multiple sclerosis because I would have to think really cognizantly about what I'm trying to do in the exam versus Parkinson's disease is far more intuitive and I kind of know what I'm looking for. Um, so I think it puts a premium on being a good clinician, listening, observing and having experience w- with the patient population uh, that you're caring for. Do you see a utility for this, for telemedicine post-COVID-19? Yeah, I don't think the utility, you know, uh, we wrote, uh, my colleagues, Dr. Michael Oaken and uh, Dr. Boss Bloom, and I wrote a uh, paper on the five C's of uh, telemedicine, and there are uh, five key benefits. One, it reduces contagion, so that's tied to the pandemic. But the other ones, you know, care, getting care that you can need regardless of where you live, convenience, getting it without having to to drive or travel or park. Uh, or the costs associated with it. Uh, third is comfort that you can do it in the comfort of your own form at home. And uh, last, man, if I got my numbers right, is to do it with some degree of confidentiality. You know, if you think about it, when you walk into a Parkinson's clinic or to a psychiatrist's office or to an HIV clinic, you're largely indicating to the public and to the people there that you have the condition um, for for which that clinic is designed. Uh, I have a patient or had a patient, you know, who was a real estate agent and he didn't want people in his community to know that he had Parkinson's disease and I could see him in his home and no one was any wiser for it. So reduce contagion, care, convenience, comfort, and confidentiality are five C's that uh, telemedicine provides. And four of those uh, had nothing to do with the pandemic. Would you be comfortable prescribing a new medication via telemedicine visit? Uh, and now am I comfortable? I do it all the time. Um, so it's, it's, yeah. Okay. So telemedicine visits could be used then for prescribing medications. Okay, good. Is there a situation where you feel that telemedicine is not a good option? Yeah. You know, within the realm of Parkinson's disease, if you're doing a, an evaluation for deep brain stimulation, you know, and you're going to meet the surgeon. I think those types of things are probably best done in person, one, to form the relationship, and two, because you really, really want to be sure you got everything that you want uh, done exam-wise. Uh, that It's just much easier to do it in person. Uh, that said, we've done off-on evaluations in uh, people's homes, and we've even seen people doing the off-evaluation in the morning, and they connected, you know, two hours later uh, to do an on-evaluation. But there are certain things that are just much better to be done in person. I think the key thing to remember is that most people don't get the care that they need. Most Americans and most people around the world don't get the care that they need. In the United States, 40% of Medicare beneficiaries with Parkinson's don't see a neurologist within four years of diagnosis. That's because, and those individuals who are less likely to see a neurologist, not surprisingly, live in rural areas, but are older, often women, or um, belong to underrepresented uh, groups or minority groups. And, you know, this is a way to bring care to patients on their terms instead of asking patients to come see healthy clinicians on theirs. Thank you, Dr. Dorsey. And just to clarify, that 2011 paper you referenced by Willis and others was a retrospective study using Medicare claims data. The authors showed that as many as 40% of identified Parkinson's patients never saw a neurologist within the 48-month period of the study. As the intersection then between healthcare and technology expands, what is your outlook on the future of telemedicine in managing Parkinson's disease? 
you know, I think we're just scratching the surface right now. If you think about it, we just use telemedicine as a substitute for in-person care. So the structure of the visit is very similar. The, the participants are very similar, you know, a clinician, a single clinician and a single patient. Um, one of my patients who lives uh, in very northern New York, up near the Canadian border uh, near Vermont, uh, remarked to me that he's doing physical therapy twice a week with a uh, hundred of his closest friends, all who have Parkinson's disease, who are doing physical therapists, uh, who are engaged with a physical therapist at, in Boston, Massachusetts. So, you know, you can think about telemedicine providing one clinician, one expert, a physical therapist in this uh, situation, providing care to many individuals, a hundred people in this case, um, via telemedicine. Conversely, you can think about many specialists, you know, uh, a neurologist, a psychiatrist, a nurse, all seeing a, a single patient uh, at the same time, you know, to think about deep brain stimulation or uh, in separate visits um, uh, to provide multidisciplinary care to individuals. We've largely talked about synchronous forms of telemedicine, you know, where the patient and the clinician are uh, seeing each other or speak or connected to each other at the same time. You can think about asynchronous visits, you know, where a patient could send a video link uh, to a pay, uh, to a physician for them to review or report different symptoms, whether that's by email or uh, other forms of technology. So I think we're just scratching the surface of what's uh, possible in the future. Then to continue with that, what do you see as the necessary steps for improving telemedicine over time? I, the biggest is policy. Uh, so the reason that we saw a hundredfold adoption uh, in telemedicine among Medicare beneficiaries during the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic is because the Center for Medicare and Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, temporary expanded coverage. That coverage is temporary and we need to make it permanent. And if Congress, uh, uh, hopefully in this term, um, makes telemedicine, uh, expanded telemedicine coverage for patients and for clinicians permanent, I think we'll see continued, we'll, we will see continued use and uh, progress uh, and creativity and the applications of telemedicine. What about broadband access? Does that need to be improved? Yeah, so that's a great one. So there's a digital divide, there's differential access uh, to the internet and related technologies based on age, sex, race, and uh, oftentimes geography. And 20% of households in the United States don't have broadband access and we need a national broadband uh, policy such that we treat broadband as a, as a utility that should be available and accessible to anyone, anywhere. Thank you very much, Dr. Dorsey. Thank you so much for your time today and for giving us your perspectives on the use of telemedicine in managing Parkinson's disease. Zeb, many thanks, my pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by Accorda Therapeutics. Accorda Therapeutics and the stylized Accorda Therapeutics logo are trademarks of Accorda Therapeutics Incorporated. Copyright 2021, Accorda Therapeutics Incorporated. All rights reserved.